Our reading is from Matthew chapter 24, starting at verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for your very warm welcome today. I must say, with so many South Africans in the church, I think there's a little bit of a takeover bit going on here, and uh, perhaps I feel extra welcome for that reason. Um, but uh, thank you. It's been, it's been a great privilege to be with you today. Well, I'm going to uh, kick off with a, a controversial question here. Um, or one which perhaps you uh, have thought about a little bit. Would you like to know when the world will end? Shall I give you a date? Ooh, I can see John really getting, starting to panic. Tonight, we're going to look at a statement that is the clearest in the Bible on that important question. It's all linked to the preaching of the gospel. Yes. Great, let's see where I go with this. Aha. Now, I'm from Africa, and I've lived and worked in Africa most of my life. So the history of gospel advance there fascinates me. The advance of the gospel in Africa uh, on that great continent in the last 2,000 years is a thrilling story, but it is also a story of terrible suffering, innumerable setbacks, and great tragedy. The growth of the church in North Africa, which became very much the beating heart of early Christianity, but which collapsed and disappeared beneath the tsunami of Islamic invasion and, uh, and conquest, stands out as possibly the, the greatest setback to church growth in all of church history. Great advance, followed by great reversal, followed by renewed advance. And now North Africa, where Paul is, is where one of the main challenges to gospel advance remains. 
The last 150 years in particular has seen the gospel take root amongst Africa's peoples in sub-Saharan Africa, and that has accelerated with each passing decade since 1900 particularly. They estimate that there were between 9 and 10 million Christians, Catholic and Protestant, in Africa in 1900. By 1970, 100 million Christians on the continent of Africa. In 2020, 640 million people naming the name of Christ on the continent of Africa, 45% of the population of that great continent. Now, even if if only a third or a quarter of that that number are Bible-believing evangelical Christians, that is staggering growth by any measurement. And all of that, in the face of wars and famines and natural disasters, the turbulence of the winds of change, Marxist excess, economic collapse, resurgent Islam, the rise of Christian cults, including the prosperity gospel, advance amidst adversity and despite reversals, progress in the teeth of problems. There's a principle at work here, or better put, a promise being fulfilled. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Now, I need to stop there. That word nations in the Greek is ethne. It's referring to ethnic groups. It's referring to those tribal groups that have an identity that coalesces around language and culture and sometimes geography. So as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. In the passage that was read for us, Christ's disciples associate the destruction of the temple with the end of the age. So they think they're asking just one question, but Jesus is answering two questions. First, one about the destruction of the temple, and secondly, one about his second coming and the end of the age. He, on the one hand, conflates the two questions, picturing the end of the age. He, he, sorry, he, he, he pictures the end of the age reflected in the destruction of the temple in, in Jerusalem. And then he, he also sets them very firmly apart. And from verse 15, we see the marker, which, what is called elsewhere the day of the Lord, which is not a literal day but the period where things accelerate towards the end, also referred to by gospel gospel writers as the end of the age. Some people talk about it as the tribulation. But whatever label is given to that period, there is a, a time leading up to it, which is the age we are presently in, and which culminates in verse 14. We're told that this period of salvation history is the birth pangs, and they are signified by the appearance and impact of false messiahs and prophets. Think Muhammad, think uh, Joseph Smith, think of the proliferation of, of cults in the last 100, 150 years. Um, they, they are signified also by wars and rumors of wars, famines, natural disasters. These things happen before the day of the Lord, before the end of the age gets underway. And as birth pangs increase in a woman in labor towards the birth of the baby, so it seems we must expect an intensification of the manifestation of birth pangs. And so, since 1900, two world wars, scores of civil and regional uh, conflicts, global pandemics, claiming the lives of tens of millions of people, devastating famines, countless natural disasters, the great leap forward in communist China, where Chairman Mao starved between 20 and 50 million of his own people to death by stealing their harvests to pay for nuclear technology from Russia, and so on. You get the picture. 
And the persecution of the church accompanies these birth pangs because it is implied the church grows despite these deceptions and cataclysms. In fact, all nations will hate the church because the church is going to all nations. There is this picture of growth amid sufferings, persecutions, the increase of wickedness, setbacks. The setbacks include large numbers turning away from the faith and betraying and and hating one another. Think of the Anglican Church in the UK recently tearing itself apart, betraying those faithful to the gospel. And then at the, the conclusion of that picture, we have verse 14, which gives, as I say, the clearest statement in God's word about the time of our Lord's com- coming. So I'm not going to give you a date, but we can, we can look for the signs. And one of the signs is the preaching of the gospel. We're fast approaching the end, not just because of the intensification of the birth pangs, but because of the preaching of the gospel clearly, credibly, boldly among more and more nations or people groups in our world. AIM and our partner churches are playing our small part in that in Africa. St. Mary's is playing its part through your mission partners scattered across the globe and right here through your outreach to the world at your doorstep. So in this verse, we find... Three things. There is a message, there is a mission, and there is a motive. A message, a mission, and a motive. It is a message of Christ's victory over death, sin, and Satan. The scripture which most clearly and simply describes this gospel of the kingdom is found in 1 Corinthians 15, which begins with the word, then the end will come. Our verse, Matthew 24, 14, ended with that that phrase, and then the end will come. Then the end will come when he hands over the, the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is how the Bible describes the reign of Christ and its purpose. God reigns in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. He reigns in order to put his enemies under his feet, death. Satan and sin. So firstly, victory over death. The gospel of the kingdom announces Christ's victory over death and declares in Revelation verse 20 that the final victory will be in the future when death will be cast, finally cast into the lake of fire. Paul says that God's grace has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We are certain of the future victory because of the victory that has already been accomplished. Death is still an enemy, but it is a defeated enemy. Trusting in Jesus, you and me will live forever. How people need this good news about the kingdom of God. Apart from the gospel of the kingdom, death is the mighty conqueror before whom we are all helpless. We can only beat our fists uselessly against the tomb. It does not yield. It does not respond. But the good news is this. Death could not hold Christ. It has been defeated. Our conqueror has been conquered. Life and immortality have been brought to light. An empty tomb in Jerusalem is proof of that. The gospel of the kingdom is, first of all, victory over death. Do you know this victory over death this evening? Do you still fear death? Could you, can you say, as the Apostle Paul said, 
Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Secondly, it is a victory over Satan. A great initial victory against him has taken place, and a final victory awaits. There's a helpful illustration from recent history of, of how a war uh, that has already been won can continue to be fought, and that's in, from the Second World War, D-Day. The Allied troops landed successfully at Normandy. They secured a beachhead on the European mainland. The operation really secured the ultimate victory for the Allies. There would be, however, many more bloody battles fought before the day on which ultimate victory would be realized on VE, Victory in Europe Day. In God's war with evil, D-Day happened with the death and resurrection of Christ. Ultimate victory is now assured. Yet the battle continues to rage until VE Day, until the glorious return of Christ. Between these two times, the church presses the battle against evil which remains in the world. Blood is still shed in these battles, and some of it will be ours. But we are, we are assured that the ultimate victory of the past will be fully realized in the future. Christ became incarnate. He shared in our humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Christ has nullified the power of death. He has also nullified the power of Satan. Satan still goes about like a roaring lion, bringing persecution upon God's people. He still insinuates himself into, uh, into church and religious circles, undermining the church from within. But he is a defeated enemy. His power, his domination has been broken. His doom is sure. A decisive, the decisive victory has been won. When he was here on earth, Christ cast out demons, delivering people from satanic, satanic bondage, bondage, proving that God's kingdom delivers men and women from enslavement to Satan. It brings them out of darkness into the saving and healing light of the gospel. This is the good news about the kingdom of God. Satan is defeated, and we may be released from demonic fear and from satanic evil and know the glorious liberty of the children of God. Are you experiencing that liberty this evening? Thirdly, the message of the kingdom includes victory over sin. We have to admit that sin, like death, is still abroad in the world. Every newscast bears eloquent testimony to this fact. Yet sin has been defeated like death and Satan have been defeated. Christ has already appeared to put away, put away uh, sin by the sacrifice of himself, uh, the writer of the Hebrews says. The power of sin has been broken. For we know, the Apostle Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with so that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Therefore, the day of slavery to sin is over. Sin is in the world, but its power is not the same. We who are Christians are no longer helpless before it, for its dominion has been broken in our lives. The power of the kingdom has invaded this age and has invaded our lives, setting us free from the bondage to sin. The gospel of the kingdom is the announcement of what God has done and will do. The gospel is one of promise, but also of experience. And the promise is grounded in experience, what Christ has done, guarantees what he will do. Christ has destroyed the power of death and sin and Satan, and he will destroy it completely when he comes back. This is the gospel. 
This is the message of the kingdom, which we must take into all the world. Which brings us to the mission of the kingdom. We find in this Matthew 24, 14, a mission as well as a message. This gospel of the kingdom, this good news of Christ's victory over God's enemies, must be preached in all the world. There must be a witness to all nations. This verse is probably the one of the most important in all of Holy Scripture because by it we know the meaning and the purpose of human history. What would you say history is all about? Why are you and I on this earth? Years ago, the philosophy of progress was widely accepted. People thought that society was improving step by step from the primitive and savage, moving upward ever ever to a higher level of culture and civilization. The assumption was that it is in the nature of man to improve continually, to evolve. Our destiny, they said, will one day attain a perfect society, free from all evil, war, poverty, and conflict. This view has been shattered upon the anvil of recent history. The concept of inevitable progress has been shown to be absurdly unrealistic. Other interpretations have been utterly pessimistic. Someone has suggested that the most accurate chart of the meaning of history is the set of tracks left by a drunken fly, feet wet with ink, staggering across a piece of white paper. The steps lead nowhere and reflect no pattern or meaning. The Bible has an answer to the question of the meaning of history. The central theme of the entire Bible is God's redemptive work throughout history. Long ago, God chose a small and insignificant people, Israel. He was not interested in this people for its own sake. God's purpose included all mankind. In his sovereign design, he selected this one insignificant people for a purpose. Through them, he intended to work out his plan of redemption, and eventually it would include the entire human race. He had a plan, and he was working out this plan in history. Then in the fullness of time, Galatians 4, verse 4 tells us, the day came when the Lord Jesus Christ appeared on earth. It's significant that he was a Jew, a physical descendant of Abraham. In Jesus, God fulfilled the purpose for Israel. This doesn't mean that God has finished with Israel, but it does mean that when Christ appeared, God reached the first goal in his purpose to redeem the nations through Israel. Up until that time, the nation of Israel was the key to understanding history. When Christ had accomplished his his work of redemption at the cross, the divine purpose in history moved from Israel, who rejected the gospel, to the church, the fellowship of both Jews and Gentiles who had accepted the gospel. This church is now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God to declare the praises of him who called us from darkness. It is in the present mission of the church as it carries the good news of the gospel of the kingdom into all the world that the saving purpose of God in history is being worked out. Consider for a moment the staggering fact that God has entrusted to people like you and me, redeemed sinners, the responsibility of carrying, his purpose, carrying out his purpose in history. Why has God done it this way? Is he not taking a great risk that his purpose will fail? After all, it's been nearly 2,000 years and the goal is still not achieved. Why did God not do it himself? Why did he not send armies of angels whom he could have trusted to complete the task 
very quickly. Why has he committed it to us? We don't know. But here are the facts. God has entrusted this mission to us, and unless we do it, it will not get done. So let this verse, Matthew 24, 14, burn in our hearts. God has said this about no other group of people. This good news of the kingdom of God must be preached by us, by the church, in all the world for a witness to all nations. This is God's program. This means that from the perspective of eternity, the mission of the church, your mission, my mission, is more important than the march of armies, than the warming of the planet, than the migrations of people, than the United Nations, Elon Musk, or artificial intelligence. As we fulfill this mission, the divine purpose of human history will be accomplished. Finally, our text contains a mighty motive. Then the end will come. So I'm not setting any dates. John will be relieved. I do not know when the end will come. And yet I do know this, that when the church has finished its task of proclaiming the gospel to all nations, Christ will come again. It's a sobering realization. It is so staggering that some people will say, I cannot believe it. It simply cannot be true that God has committed such responsibility to people. When William Carey wanted to go to India 200 years ago to take the gospel to that country, he was told, sit down, young man. When God wants to, uh, when God wants to uh, evangelize the heathen, he will do it without your help or mine. But Carey had the vision and the knowledge of God's word to rise up. He didn't sit down. He rose up, went to India. He initiated the modern-day movement of worldwide missions that has taken the gospel to almost every nation. So God has entrusted to us the continuation and the consummation of this task. Here's the thing that thrills me. We've come closer, far closer to the finishing of this mission than any previous generation. We've done more in the past two centuries, more in the past 50 or 60 years in reaching the nations than all the preceding centuries since the time of the apostles. Modern technology has allowed us to spread out, speed up the task of carrying the gospel unto all the world. The word of God has now been rendered in part or in whole in nearly 2,000 languages. Large numbers of people groups formerly without a church now have a church. In the country where Paul has gone to serve in North Africa. The church uh, among one of that nation's people groups has grown to 1,000 believers in the space of seven years. Remarkable when you consider that this group had never had a single believer before the, the year 2015. Here's the challenging fact. If a relatively small minority of God's people took this text really seriously and responded to its challenge, we could finish the task of preaching the gospel in the whole world in our own generation. We would then witness the Lord's return. Our responsibility is not to save the world. We are not required to transform this age. Matthew 24 tells us that until the very end of the age, there will be wars and troubles. People will be attacked and killed for their faith. False prophets and false messiahs will arise and lead many astray. Iniquity and evil will abound so that the love of many Christians will grow cold. God's people will be called again, uh, called upon to endure hardship. In this world you will have trouble, Jesus said. And in this text we had read to us in verse 13, Jesus says, the one who stands firm to the end will 
be saved, implying that there is a great struggle. As we carry the gospel into the world, we are not to expect unqualified success. We are to be prepared for opposition, resistance, reversals, even persecution and martyrdom. This age remains evil and hostile to the gospel of the kingdom. There is, however, no room either for unrelieved pessimism. The kingdom of God has invaded this present evil age. The gospel of the kingdom will indeed be proclaimed throughout all the world. God declares in Acts 2.17, In the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all people, citing the prophet Joel. God has poured out his spirit in the last days upon us to empower us to proclaim the kingdom as a testimony to all nations. You and I have had the spirit poured out upon us. This must be the spirit of mission in our age. We're not rosy optimists, neither are, are we to, to be despairing pessimists who feel that our task is hopeless in the face of all the evil around us. We are realists, biblical realists. While we recognize the terrible power of evil, we also continue the mission of proclaiming the gospel to the whole world because we, can, we know that as we continue that mission, we should expect to see victories, revealing God's kingdom. And when Christ returns in glory, he will accomplish the last and the greatest victory. So here is the motive of our mission, and then the end will come. When, the, when will this age end? Well, when all the peoples in the world have heard the gospel in a language that they can understand and respond to as a testimony to them. The final victory awaits the completion of our task. To us is given not only to wait for, but to also to hasten the coming of the, of the day of the Lord. This is the mission of of the gospel of the kingdom. And this is our mission. So what part will you play? We talked about these uh, earlier in the service and and in the other services today. Um, There's local cross-cultural outreach. The world has come to your doorstep. You have teams that are involved in this. Uh, You have mission partners who you can get to pray with. And, of course, there are opportunities with AIM and other agencies amongst the unreached of our world. We have a great message, a great mission, and a marvelous motive to go on mission with this message to the whole world. Amen.